Jesus, that was marvelous. What the hell was that? That's the adagio from Bach. <laughs> I love that. Are you recording? Yes. Okay, let's let's go. It's May 22nd, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Chris Millard. Well, a treat for you this week. Pinka Zuckerman's in the studio with me, and we're going to talk about something that I find the most essentially fascinating thing sitting in, in an orchestra all these years and watching string players and watching conductors rehearse. The single fascinating thing for me is Boeing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Too bad we have them, huh? Too bad you have them, yeah. We have a ball with all... That's called pizzicato, right? <laughs> you know, I often have mm. symphony audiences say to me, they come to concerts and say, wow, look at all the string players. Their bows are doing exactly the same thing. And in a good orchestra, of course, we hope, we, we hope that happens. <laughs> but it isn't just an accident. It looks pretty simple. It looks like up and down and down and up and sometimes up and up and sometimes down and down. But... The thing is, it's a, the whole decision of what kinds of strokes, what, where, where you divide the bow, the issue of bow division, are you in the upper half, the middle half? It's a huge, huge subject. And I'm wondering, even for someone like me who's an educated musician, not playing the instrument still makes it a foreign language. Well, Chris, I have to go a little bit uh, back, further back uh, on the Boeing issue. Uh, and that is that... Um, it's when I first started to conduct without the violin. In other words, I really sat, or I mean, stood and started with. Well, I conducted without a stick. The first thing I did is take the parts, the string parts. Now, let's call it eighty percent of our music, uh, the classical, the romantic repertoire, comes from the strings. Ostensibly, horns will be some hard cellos, uh, clarinets will be with with uh, violas, etc., as orchestration goes. But in order to study the score, I decipher it through playing the parts. And I still do. A lot of times I actually sit at home um, and I, I actually bow uh, the parts on my own. It's one way of studying the score. It, it, you internalize not only what you see, but what you hear. My difficulty some 30 years ago was to actually learn that 8, 10, 12 people, could they actually do that boing I just played in a Mozart symphony, let's say. Mm-hmm. With time, I learned that some of them can and some of them cannot. Now comes this whole issue of across the pond. In Germany, we'll do certain things, let's say, end up on a downbow where there's no accent because of the language they the way they think of the music, but also the language. We call it kultur, musicalische kultur, the K. We learn to play properly in North America, meaning we come from the string, that stroke, the actual stroke of deadening. I press down with the bow, I then release. It's a ka sound, what you would call a ka sound, let's say, a consonant. Now, that's the proper way. In Europe, they don't necessarily teach that, even though recently, in the last decade or so, they've started to. But they do more of this sort of... 
which is already a concept in sound. Because theoretically, the sound should start from the bass. That's where a chord is. It starts at the bass. We don't play the bass part in the violin. So distance as well, an overtone, will make you play a little bit later, or should. But it depends what you want to hear. Now comes the whole musical education. As far as Boeing go, to go back to the subject of learning the score, that's how I do it. And I tell all the conducting students to go to the parts, deciphering that without the score. This is actually to learn each part and what it does and then see how it meets. What does it meet? Does it meet a clarinet? Does it meet a bassoon? Does it, whatever it is. Because that's how you study. You, you come to this from a performer's perspective. No, no, this is Swarovski. This is all Swarovski in Vienna with Zubin, with Daniel, with Abado, with all these people. It doesn't matter what instrument you play, you've got to know why it sounds a certain way. Well, let me ask you this. Let's, let's go back to the basics here. Is the bow arm the breath? Can be. The preparation for playing, absolutely. There are so many elements that go into preparing the actual note. But I'm talking about in the analogy between the groups of instruments and the analogy to the human voice. If you agree that the reason that we play, the reason we pick up instruments, as we call them, is out of an elemental desire to sing. Yeah. Okay? And for wind players, our decisions are really only when do we inhale and when do we, when do we take a breath? How, how do we incorporate the, the challenge of a particular phrase and, and make it somehow vocal? So I'm asking you, is the bow arm that same function? It can. It should. You've got to have a lot of information, physical knowledge and practice of how to do it, and then we refer to, it's like the voice, but I also refer to the piano a lot, because it's the cleanest instrument. You hit the note, that's it. It can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. And then it's gone. It's gone. It's a, it's a hammer. But then comes a whole slew of things of how to play that properly. So when, when you play, I think what one has to, the other problem is, I think, is how much do we use technical knowledge to play the music? And how much do we use musical knowledge to play the technique? Mm -hmm. I don't... Eventually it becomes... And the reason for that is because there are two sides of the brain. Well, you would hope that the musical knowledge drives the technique, yes? Eventually. But without the, without the motor, you can't do it. And that's where the argument begins between, let's say, a German violinist saying, Ach, what do I need all this? You know, Martale and Detaché. And they do it anyway because they see it in the music. But the question, does it sound right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a matter of taste. It's a matter of how much you know and what to do. One should be occupied with both all the time. For orchestral playing, there can be some limitations on that because you're talking about 10, 11 other people playing with you. So it's a different kind of knowledge. But if you know how to do it, it should be no problem at all. So let me take you back to, to the most simplistic view of all this. A musician, a, a violinist, sits down with an orchestral part in front of him or her, or her, and they have to make a decision. Do I start down bow or do I start up bow? <laughs> well, the bit what, of the Fifth the, Symphony, you're not going let's to start talk, down yeah, bow. Let's talk about this. Well, let's <laughs> show us, uh, give us some examples. I mean, okay, for example... Let me show a perfect example. For the bit of the Fifth Symphony, first of all, you've got to play on the right string. In the violin case, I played on the G string. And I go from the string, Chris, listen. Okay, it's from the string. That's an up bow. Now down bow, it's awkward. It's physically impossible. It's, it's, wrong. it's the wrong motion. Now, I've seen people go, 
That's what that being. Okay, so what our listeners can't see at this point is that the, the whole motion of the arm has become sort of higher and less focused. That's, right. Not, that's exactly right. Right. Now, in the case of, of that opening theme of the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven, it starts on an eighth rest, then there are three eighth rests going to a strong downbeat. So the fact that you have a, a, an, a silence on a primary beat and then leading into ba-ba-ba-ba, does that influence your decision on whether the first note is going to be down or up? No. In other words, are you looking for a way of de-emphasizing accents or emphasis in the decision of the double no, or it's a purely phys- This particular beginning is a purely physical. We look at those three notes, we're going to play automatically up bow. Okay, so you're playing three up bows. No, up, down, up. Okay, sh- show, show, me, uh, show me how you would play this in various permutations. For example, could you play up, 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 down? What is wrong with that? It's totally physically incorrect for the music. What would three downs sound like? Worse. <laughs> what would up, down, up, down sound like? That's the one. Okay. But from the string. But from the string. And show me what down, up, down, up would sound like. Okay, so they all have slightly different characters, right? Unfortunately, <laughs> Unfortunately, <yes. laughs> they do. That's right. But imagine, imagine. Now we're talking about a whole string, string yeah. section doing it from the string. Now, we've experimented in the summer with the kids that do the conducting, and I sit in with the the string quintet, and I say, off the string. And they beat the same way. And it sounds... Okay, first of all, for our listeners, off the string and on the string, explain the difference. It's not from the string. It's... This is from the string. There's a clarity to it. Okay, show me a different kind of passage where you would play off, and then a similar passage where you were playing on the string. Hmm... Well, that's a hard. Wait a second. Okay, the first one being on the string, and the second off the string. A right. question of lightness of articulation. Right now, what what I was saying before this this is a perfect example. I saw the Vienna Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall. I saw, I heard them, and they went like this. last note was it had this air to it and it was in a down ball so I was, I decided to to do it on an up ball because I can't do it on a down ball I personally can't do it on a down ball in America you would hear in Vienna you hear okay musical education looking like for an evaporation as the phrase goes up yeah okay. it's the next phrase starting etc etc so without an accent that, that comes from marking the parts. But is, is this a, a case where the musical value has, is directly evolved from the technical background of the players? Absolutely. But it's also the hall. It's their way of looking at that music, looking meaning what they know about Beethoven, because it's in their DNA. It's not in ours. Now, I don't mean you and me, but I'm talking about in general in America. We don't talk. We just say Beethoven. We say Beethoven. <laughs> it's already a big difference just uh, in the pronunciation yeah, yeah. so in I the went language. backstage I went backstage at Carnegie and I went to the concertmeister and I said tell me please how did you do that on a dumbbell he looked at me so surprised he said that's how we played in Vienna and I said of course how silly of me to ask the, it was a silly question but to get that even here on an apple I have to do here I don't mean here I mean North America it's a cultural difference is it good yes should it be experimented? Yes. 
Should people be aware of it? Absolutely. Can teachers teach that? Some. Now, I'll give you another example, which I played in the Munich Orchestra, Munich Philharmonic, which used to be Celebedaki's Orchestra. In the fourth concert, after I played the Berg in the first half, they were doing the C major Schubert Symphony, and I was sitting next to the guy. I was number 17 or 16 or something in the first violin, and he goes like in the, in the uh, Allegro. Just like that. The guy next to me, I thought, wow, this is amazing. The whole string section was... I said, how do I get that, you know, next time I stand up there? When we finished playing, I said to him in German, thank you very much for being my partner tonight. He looked at me and said, what are you talking to me in German for? I said, you American? He said, yeah, I'm from Philly. I said, <laughs> I would never have known in a thousand years uh-huh. that he was an American fiddle player. So I said, how long have you been? He's eight years. So he loves it. Well, you're speaking to the internationalization of, of culture and education. But it's interesting. It's, it, you see it now in a lot of... The EU situation in Europe is pretty good that way. You know, you see a lot of different people from different places, particularly in Germany, where they were so adamant about certain things. Uh, now, what's interesting for me is Stravinsky, for example, in Germany doesn't work. It just, I mean, it works, but it's a different quality completely. It doesn't have that impact. It doesn't have that uh, to it, you know, that bite, if you like. Yeah. Some people say we don't need it. Well, maybe we're not, but we, we certainly, that accuracy of rhythm, for example, it's musically correct within the rhythm, but, but it's not what I'm used to hearing. And Elgar, for example, they don't really hear Elgar. It's really interesting. Pincus, let me pull you back a bit here into basics one more time. Is a downbow always heavier sounding than an upbow? No, it should be basically the same. Well, in, in, a, in a, say in a, in a very advanced player, you, you have one answer, but I'm sure that in, in a more average kind of a player and in a more average kind of an orchestra, my observation over the years is very much that often bowing decisions are made in order to avoid emphasis from down bows or to avoid lack of emphasis in up bows. Can you yeah. can you talk about what, what is there a, an essential character to to an up bow that makes it fit in with an upbeat? Oh, but the, the eye. If we see as string players, we'll see an upbeat, and if we see pam pam, we'll play up down, automatic. You know. That's it. But play it backwards. Is it more technically difficult to yes. give the sense of a downbeat with an upbow? No, but I wouldn't do it in that short a distance. If I had... Or this is downbow. But in an orchestra, if you had that, depending on the orchestra and its level, as you said, upbow could go... Apathy, it's called. So you say, excuse me, could you not, not so hard on a downbow? So you feel that there tends to be a kind of a group think mentality that starts to take over Absolutely. the decision making. Absolutely. Look, the perfect example, if you like, is this. Now I'm doing down, up, down, up, down, up. In the crescendo, I tra- what we call travel. I go from approximately the tip of the bow almost to the frog. Why? Because that's the heavier part of the bow. Now play it again, just staying in the upper half of the bow. Oh, but I mean, musically speaking, I would do it. I can do it. Look. 
but it's drier, isn't it? Yeah, because the the quarter note doesn't have that lift, that travel. The travel is our grammar of making the ball go to the right spot. In other words, we practice travel. What our listeners can't see, of course, is that as you're playing through this phrase, you, the bow, is, which is starting in the upper half towards the tip, you start to bring the bow arm up and towards the frog, which is giving you the greater depth. And then after, I state the tip. Same. That's important because that's a sequence. You want technical sequence to make the music work the same way. And that's what singers will tell you. That's control. Is it always the case that one can produce a, a lighter, more atmospheric sound in the upper half of the bow than in the, down, uh, the lower part of the bow? It depends on the music. It really depends on the music. I can tell you that, that in Debussy, for the Debussy Sonata, I go... Which, which you're playing mostly in the upper half of there. Yeah, but it's all, I'm tilting the bow a little to the side, which gives it a... But I also hear Debussy. I don't hear Debussy. In German, it would be Achtung. <laughs> you know, so it's a different sound in my ear, which I'm trying to get here. Because I don't have the consonants of the vowels. So, in addition to the to the division of the bow, in terms of where in the length of the bow you're you're touching the fiddle, you're also changing the angle of the bow and how much the weight, the weight of the bow, weight and, the and how many of the hairs are actually scraping <laughs> on the string at one time. Right. In addition, you're also changing the place on the strings where the bow is making contact. Right, a little further down towards the fingerboard. Yes. So. So play that phrase for our listeners once in a position closer to the bridge. And now towards the fingerboard. But if this was Schubert, Chris, I would probably do the same thing with the ball, but it would sound different because of fingering. Look. It's a different period of music. That's what changes. Describe to me what you've done with the choice of fingerings to make that sound change. I don't do all harmonic. No harmonics? Slight different pressure in my left hand. Let me back up a little bit. Show me what a harmonic sounds like. One pitch and then the same pitch fingered. It's always a giveaway for a listener hearing a harmonic because there's never vibrato. Mm, No, that's not true. How do you make vibrato on a harmonic? The string. It's vibrating. Look, Look at the string. If it wasn't vibrating, that means I'm deadening it. That's non vibrato. But that's not a color. That's a desire by the composer to be in some way idiomatically different. Take the same pitch, produce it fingered, and show me the different possibilities of vibrato in the fingered fingered note. On that note? Well that's on the D string. So Same yeah, same string. That note harmonic? And now now fingered. Fingered is Sorry. 
No. Also vibrating. You hear overtones. Yeah. Now a little release, which is what a vibrato is. Okay, now he's moving his fingers. A little release. If you go beyond that knocking, what we call wah, wah, wah. In your case, the diaphragm has gone through your stomach. <laughs> and it's not working. Right. Okay, now comes pressure of finger. You can pressure the finger this way. You can do a little more arm. You can do very little pressure with the thumb. All different colors. That comes from musical knowledge. But you got to know what you're doing technically, or otherwise you forget the musical knowledge. You can talk about it until the cars come home. So, Pinkus, you come to a new orchestra to conduct. You've never worked with them before. You've, you've chosen, say, a Brahms symphony or something. What process has gone, gone on before your arrival in terms of notifying the string players what you're going to want from them? In some cases, do you have your parts sent out? with all your cases. own? In, in your, okay. And is it always the case that your bowings will be followed religiously? No. I have usually at least two possibilities in some places because people have experimented. Again, because of lingo, syntax, hall, uh, a whole bunch of different And also the style of, the, of that group of musicians. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay. Uh, so a French orchestra sometimes won't be able to do certain things. They just won't. It's not in their vocabulary, so you look for it. If I were to ask you for, say, the opening of Brahms' first symphony, right. would you be able to show me two completely different possibilities in terms sure. of... America will play... It may not be as loud when they play. Mm-hmm. Now, in Europe, the first thing you're going to hear is... A delay of the vibrato. That's the attack. I like that a lot. But you are choosing the down bow to begin. Oh, yeah. I would never start that on a down bow. It's the wrong uh, implication. Show me something in that phrase where there would be a clear choice between an up bow and down bow, and how would it would translate into a difference of color? Or is it very this much... Is, this, is, uh, not, this is not a possible... It's not possible. You could do... Uh, I'll show you... In other words, there's really only one way to, to bow it in terms that, of when you change from up to down. Yeah, because the, the actual elbow going into that down bow is what the sound you want. It's, a, it's like slowing down that air coming out just a little bit. I mean, split second. It goes... Ah, so it's a kind of a consonant, but not really. A dark sort of... Through the, through the deep depth of his throat, you go... Ah, because you got that timpani going boom. You don't need ah. So that's knowledge now of music. Now we're talking about the rhythm, the actual tonality, of course, the tonic is also in the, it, very important. I mean, it's three octaves above, below, but or the violin part, but you've got that rhythm. You've got that meter. So oppo would not be necessary, really. How about the opening of the slow movement? Oh, <laughs> well... That's important. Um, play, play it for us so we know what the yeah. subject is here. Just because give us you theme. want to go to the second bar. But that, you see, most of the time you see one, two. Okay. The physiology of playing the instrument, the real true, true legato is one finger. The minute you put down the other finger, it disturbs that legato. 
One of the things that you do, and a few really fine players do really well, is something that I've certainly observed for years and have tried to emulate my own playing as a wind player, is the continuity of the vibrato. Now, in your case, what you're describing is a movement of first finger on the fingerboard, then the second finger goes down the third finger, but the action in the hand that's producing the the back and forth and produces the vibrato is not altered by either the position of the hand on the fingerboard or the choice of fingers. What's amazing about this is that you have to start with the fact that the vibrato is a release. If you think of the vibrato not being an expulsion of air, literally in your case, playing a wind instrument or a release of the diaphragm. But you know what's really difficult for us is keeping vibrato going as we move our fingers to go to the next note. For everybody. Yeah, but it's an entirely mental problem. It's not a physical problem. Okay. It's, it's, we, we grow up playing wind instruments, and so we're so habitually afraid of moving to the next note because you don't know if the note's going to go, Wah! you know, completely get away from you. So when you're a kid and you have absolutely no idea what you're doing in terms of support or technique, and you, you, you start to, to favor, you start to hide, you start to be right. careful. So you move, you, you move from, a, from a C to a D, you lift one finger. Why should that interfere with the continuity of the color that you're making. And of course, in great plane, you can get over that. You have a wave within that note. So what I, what I want you to show me with this opening phrase of the second movement of Brahms 1 right. is to show this where you do not pay attention to the continuity of color between the opening three-quarter notes. So, you mean not to worry about the so, vibrato? Yeah, so I want you to play it in, in a, what would be for you a distasteful way of... Per, of one with, one without. One what without. Call, just, yeah, okay. Yeah, so this just, is the first note is without a vibrato. That's terrible. That's a disease. I call that a disease. Yeah. Okay. So do it. Do it another bad way. Start with vibrato, and then maybe the second note without. Oh, just so we. That's just. Even worse. But uh, we, just so we can really hear. Usually, you'll hear this. Because the fourth finger is the weakest finger. And it's also because the upbeat wants to take itself through tension to the downbeat, so you, t- you leave the vibrato off the third beat, and it somehow... Uh, in fir- our case, it's just because the, the pinky is just very weak. Okay, okay. so now pl- uh, play it now with, with the attention to the continuity of sound and a sonority through each note, through each interval. Okay. One of the hardest things there is to do, isn't it? However, there is always going to be a stoppage of the actual vibration because you have to put your finger down, but the ear can't pick it up. Provided? Provided you properly, you play properly with the left hand. And you're, you're, you're vibrating your wrist and your hand there. Chris, maybe you can describe this. This is how we teach vibrato. It's a release. It's a knock against, let's say, a, a table. So Pincus is holding his left hand up in the air above his fingerboard well, with his... Supported you know, with the right hand underneath the elbow, right, and, and we go boom. Kind boom. of flopping your wrist in a very relaxed way, and right. the fingers are staying curled and loose. Down. It's a down motion, mm-hmm. which you control. The brain says, okay, down. The hand just comes right back up because you can't stay there. If you do, now you've tensed up, which is an arm vibrato, if you like. Eventually, will become an arm vibrato. And it just, you know, it goes, that's it. That's, it's, that's it. There's no continuity immediately. You can see it. Pincus, I want to thank you very much. We're going to continue this on next week's podcast, and we're going to continue our discussion about color and vibrato. And perhaps next week, 
we can talk about uh, maybe some of your favorite work of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach and may- maybe talk a little bit more about how you go about making Boeing decisions. Mm-hmm. Pinkus Zuckerman, thank you very much for coming in today. You are an angel. Listen to the NACOcast for a chance to win an iPod Nano preloaded with recent NAC Orchestra CDs and past episodes of the NACOcast. During the month of May, we'll ask a question that can be answered by listening to an earlier NACOcast episode. Subscribe to the NACOcast to ensure you don't miss the question and your chance to win. You can find instructions on subscribing at nac.ca slash podcast. And of course, you can also find the NACOcast as a free subscription in the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. That's N-A-C-O-C-A-S-T. So tune in to the NACOcast for a chance to win an iPod Nano preloaded with some wonderful music from Pinka Zuckerman and Canada's National Arts Centre Orchestra. Don't forget, send us your questions and comments. If we read your feedback on the show, we'll send you a stylish NACOcast coffee mug. Send your email to nacocast at gmail.com. For the NAC Orchestra... This is bassoonist Christopher Millard.